church membership infomercial? Check. We're in Romans 9 today, just like we have been for the last three or four weeks. So grab your Bibles, Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 29. Let's take a quick look back, okay? 9, 1 through 5 was where we kind of kicked off this fall. We saw Paul expressing his profound sadness that uh, his kinsmen, him being an Israelite, he's sad that unbelieving Israel has been caught off from Christ. 9, 6 through 13 talked about how, addressed the, the, the possible challenge that if, if Israel's not included in any way, shape, or form, that God's word, God's promise must have failed. And Paul goes on to say that this is not the case. In fact, really, that this doesn't mean that God's word has failed, but that really his purpose of election, which has been firm, all the more stands. And last week we heard from Bernie where he talked about uh, addressing really the, the injustice uh, that perceived injustice on God's part if it's depending on election or God's mercy. And he's challenging that. He's saying, no, God's purpose in election is not unjust. It's always depended upon mercy, not works. And so now, considering that, you know, you look at verse 18, our last verse in chapter, chapter 9, and we hear these words that aren't really easy to swallow, may not be palatable, uh, especially when they're not properly understood. So verse 18 says, so then... He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. This idea that God's will manifested in salvation is that he is, on the one hand, showing mercy to some and hardening others is a difficult thing to swallow. And so one might object to that. One might say, well, well, well then why does he still find fault, as our opening verse says in 19, for who can resist his will? This idea that if election is based solely on God's will, which can't be opposed, right? The, the question is asked with that foundation in mind. Knowing that God's will cannot be opposed, ultimately, if that's the case, and he's giving mercy to some and hardening others, then how could he possibly hold anyone responsible for their actions. Because all of their actions would just be the outflow of his activity and his will. How can God justly hold anybody accountable for their actions if it's based on the will of God? Raise your hand if you haven't asked this question yourself. When we think about God's sovereign choice, God's mercy, God's hardening work. My hand's up there. If it's the will of God, how could he hold anyone accountable? How can God blame sinners if they're simply carrying out his will? Maybe you could uh, ascertain this. You could say, well, if God's will is the cause, maybe God should be, pl should be blamed for the effects. Maybe this is all God's fault then, my sin. This question is raised in chapter 19, and let's read the rest of it together and see how Paul answers this quandary, if you will, this question 
of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Verse 19 through 29, we read together. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Verse 20 says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people, and her who is not beloved I will call beloved. And in the very place where it is said to them, you are not my people, There they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of God. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pray right now that you would reveal yourself, your nature, your power, your glory, your mercy, and your faithfulness. And your justice toward that which you have made and saved for yourself. We ask this in Christ our Lord's name. Amen. There's a major difference between asking questions and questioning someone. It's a major difference. We as parents know this, okay? And if you have anyone in their teenagers are approaching it, you know this. There's a difference between kids asking you questions and being questioned. You follow? Parents, I know you're following. Kids ask a lot of questions. Over the years, I've been asked countless questions. It's all a stall tactic to not get to bed on time. But I get asked a lot of questions. And am I frustrated by questions? Am I angry that my children are curious? They want to understand why things happen or what's going on or want to know God or how to, how to play a sport or, or an instrument or what happened in a movie that you watch. Nope. No problems with questions. Questions about our past, our history, where we came from. Those are wonderful moments where kids' curiosity can lead to really connecting with one another, right? Nothing wrong with asking questions. And here's a wonderful thing about our Father in Heaven. He can deal with our questions, Right? He, can, he, he loves his children who seek him 
and ask him questions, who are curious about who he is and his nature and want to know him. But there's a difference between asking questions and questioning God. Very significant difference. We know that as parents, when the tone or the tenor or the words reflect not a curious tone, but a rebellious one. One that is accusatory. What do we see here is that exactly. You'll say to me then, why does he find fault? For who can resist God? Who can, who can resist his will? And Paul responds, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? That word answer back carries an accusatory tone. That understand the question about his justice in election, the question about whether or not they could still be held, recount, uh, held accountable for sin is not one of curiosity. It's one of questioning God. It's one of accusing God. It's one of challenging his purpose and his nature. So when we challenge God, just like children who challenge their parents, what happens is uh, there, there's, a, there's an overestimation of self, your place. There's an over-evaluation, a presumptuous elevating of our place and our identity and a devaluing of the one that we question. And so Paul responds by putting this person who questions, who answers back, back into their place. Puts this person in their place who's presumptuously, presumptuously elevating their identity and devaluing God's identity. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Contrast. This verse challenges us in return to recognize our place, recognize our standing, recognize our role in relationship to God. That we do not have the freedom to question or call God to account for his actions, his purposes, and his ways. We just simply do not have the right to do that. It's not our place to question God, to blame him for our actions. And so there we have this, this tenuous situation where we have the div, uh, divine sovereignty set against human responsibility. And we feel like in our own finite minds that we need to somehow figure this out to make sense of it all. That, that if it's all about the will of God in election, then we can't be held responsible for our sin. Or if it's all about maintaining our responsibility, what? Then we can't maintain or hold dear to divine sovereignty when it comes to his wills and his ways as it relates to people. It's hard for us to, to bring these two truths together. But the truth is we cannot compromise either of them. That, that it's, it's a both and. We must hold dear to both. That there's never a time, there's never a place, regardless who we are, to put God on the stand, God in the place of, of the accused, and to blame him for what we have indeed done. So when the will of God or the word of God confronts our sin, we have no right to deflect. We have no right to 
transfer the blame back toward him. We must assume responsibility for what we have done. We cannot blame God for it. We must assume responsibility for the things we have not done in relationship to God. Our sin is the result of our nature. God is not the cause of our sin. You need to let that settle in your heart. God is not the cause of our sin. And so we have no right to look back at God and say, it's all your fault. If it's all up to your will, it's all your fault. We have no right, we have no place being mere men and women in relationship to Almighty God who sovereignly orchestrates human history uh, in a way that He pleases. God is not the cause of our sin. Our stubborn, disobedient, unwilling to obey hearts are responsible for our sin. Not Him. This is our doing. And as Romans has been very clear, to Him we're accountable. We are accountable for our sins and our actions. And when we blame Him, and we question His nature and His sovereignty, when we blame Him for all that is wrong in us, and, and, and the way that He treats sinful humanity, we lose sight of who we are. And what we have done. We do what Isaiah 29 says. We turn things upside down. Isaiah 29, 16 says, Shall the challenges them. It says, You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. Isaiah says that when we do this, when we transfer and blame God based on His will, we use His sovereign will as a way to blame Him for what has happened to us and what we have done. Guess what? We turn things upside down. Or we do what C.S. Lewis calls role reversal. Some of you have read a lot of C.S. Lewis. Maybe in your reading of C.S. Lewis, you've, you've stumbled across God in the dock. Listen to this quote from him. He says, The ancient man approached God or even the gods, as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, meaning man. God is in the dock. That to question him, to call his nature to account, based on his nature... And to blame Him for our sin and point back at Him is to turn things upside down. It's to elevate our identity and to devaluate His. It's to take the role of the judge and put God on, in the dock to put Him on trial. Bottom line, no human being, according to the Scriptures, no human being has the right to challenge God's justice legitimately. No human being has the right to challenge God's justice in election or hold God responsible for their sin. We do not have the right to do that. That turns things upside down. That puts God in the dock. 
He goes on to say, verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay? Again, continuing this potter and clay imagery. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Has God have no right over what he has made, over what he has saved, to do what he wills with whom he wills for his own purposes? Yes, the pot, like the potter, God has every right to do what he wills with whom he wills. We have no right to challenge that. Because he's God. That's what makes him who he is. He's God. He has every right to do what he wills with whom he wills. Just like a potter holds the right over clay. Will what it's molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? I think oftentimes we have elevated our identity, our place in the world. And this puts us in our place. That we are creations of God and we are recreations of God. And we have fallen in sin, and we are accountable for our actions before him. As Romans has been very clear. We have no right to challenge or question God. We have no right to put him on the, in the dock, as C.S. Lewis says. We have no right to turn things upside down. But God has every right, as the maker and redeemer of his people, to do what he wills with whom he wills. He has that right. Verse 22 says, what if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Why does God do what he does? Let me ask it a little bit more personally for you. Why are you even alive? What is your existence all about? In today's world, we would easily answer that question to maximize personal happiness now. That's what life is all about. Maximizing personal happiness. Living to our fullest potential. Being all that we can be. And leaving a legacy for our kids to do the same. As I see it often, be the best version of you. I always scratch my head at that one. I'm like, that the best version of me still kind of stinks. Is that really what it, this is kind of uninspiring? You say, well, Mike, you need to really think more about what a better person you could be. Maybe you're being too hard on yourself. No, I think, think over at 40, almost 40, I'm getting to know myself a little bit more. I got a lot of learning to do. But the best version of myself is still pretty bad. There's got to be more to it than this. Is there, this mic's going crazy. Is this really distracting for you guys? It's, it's really distracting me, so I apologize. I'm doing my best here. Um, yeah. What is life all about? What are we doing here? Why have we even been made? Why are being, we, we being redeemed? 
and saved. Why is God hardening? Why is he dispensing mercy? Why is God doing anything that he's doing? And why do we even exist? And you see this repeated phrase in verses 22 through 24. You're seeing it to show, to make known, to make known. That all that God is doing is to put on display his nature in what he's made and what he's redeemed. That that is why we're alive. It's not about maximizing our own personal happiness. It's not about leaving a legacy for our children. It's not ultimately about that. It's about God doing what he wills in whom he wills to display who he is. God wants to display his nature in his creation and in his recreated humanity. It's all about the display of God. That's why we exist That's why God made us, Genesis chapter 1, right? I'm going to make men and women in what? My image, after my likeness. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Why? Because I'm spreading my nature in you, through you, throughout the ends of the earth. It's all about the display of my nature. That's why we exist. And that comes right into the face of the modern man who thinks it's all, and women, it's all about personal happiness. It's all about maximizing potential. No, it is about the display of the nature of God. Please adjust your thinking. Mike, adjust your thinking about your life. Maybe that would change the way we approach God. Rather than questioning him and challenging his nature, maybe we'll start to think a little bit different about the purpose of our existence. We are here to display his nature. Whatever part or or aspect of his nature he would like to display in us. It's not about our success. It's not about our fulfillment. It's about the display of the nature of God. Have I said that enough yet? Don't miss it. Talking about, what is my purpose in life? Why do I exist? Say it. Display his nature. Tell yourself that. When I go home at night, it is not to relax. It is to display the nature of God to my family. Man, I don't want to do that. Man, I want to watch TV. (laughs) Want to eat? Watch TV and sleep. But life is all about the display of the nature of God. That is why he does what he does with whom he wills. To display who he is. Vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath. Yes, out of the same lump of clay. He's creating uh, vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use. That gets real uncomfortable for us. But understand this, the lump of clay is sinful humanity. People who are held accountable for their sin and their rebellion and their sinful state before God. So he takes out of this well-deserving of wrath people, and he says, okay, I'm going to fashion and make, I'm going to create, and, and I'm going to have some for honorable use and dishonorable use. Yes, out of this same lump of clay, out of humanity that has fallen and rejected me and disobeyed me. And by the way, I told him, if you disobey my word, you will surely die. So out of a condemned, headed toward eternal death humanity, I'm going to create vessels for honorable use and vessels for dishonorable use. Yes, I'm going to make for myself vessels of wrath to display my wrath 
and display my power. That's what it says. Desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Because, in order that, what? For the purpose to make known the riches of his glory and vessels of mercy. There's contrast here. There's vessels of wrath. There's vessels of mercy. Vessels of wrath are prepared for destruction. Vessels of mercy, God has prepared beforehand, much more active intentional word, prepared beforehand for what? For glory. Whether it's vessels of mercy or vessels of wrath, guess what's happening? God is displaying his nature. God is making himself known. You go back to verses 14 through 18, that's what he did with Pharaoh. Why have I hardened you? Why have I raised you up? Verse uh, 17, for this very purpose I've raised you up, that I might show my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed in all of the earth. Why did God do this to Pharaoh? Because he wanted to make known his nature. He wanted to make known his power and his wrath. How did he do it? Quickly, right? He just went into Egypt and, and took him out. No. No, that's not how he did it. You ever read the, the, the ten plagues and go, this is absolutely insane. Why is he doing this? Like, Why does he have to do it ten times? If he's so powerful of a God, why is he doing it ten different plagues? Why wouldn't you just go in there with, with Moses and his staff and just, it's over, wipe you out, and take him out? Why a slow process that ends in a very uh, tragic um, and yet very saving consequence. Why? Because in the slowness, in the repeated nature of it, with God's even patience toward these vessels of wrath, withholding that final decisive judgment on Pharaoh, what is he doing? He's displaying that. The way that he's doing it is displaying his power all the more. The slow process in which he brings Israel out. He's displaying his nature in that, his mercy. Now, how is he doing that? Through contrast. That's how God is doing it. God highlights who he is by painting a contrast. I'm just finishing up a project. I do a little real estate investment on the side. Uh, and just finishing up a project and we've basically redone this whole house and I learned a lesson that I really learned long ago but hadn't applied it very well to this particular house how do you highlight the features of a house on the outside just somewhere any questions any answers landscaping okay yeah what about just on the house itself what's one way I should say to highlight the features of a house color and how do you do that with color paint Say you paint it dark blue. What's your trim on a dark blue? White. I didn't do it because I'm stupid. But I will next time. But here's the deal. God's not stupid. God knows how to highlight certain attributes of his character. You know how he does it? Contrast. The features of redemption are highlighted all the more when it's set in the backdrop of judgment. Right? What is he's doing? What he's he's patient with vessels of wrath, making known as his wrath and his power. He's patient with them. Why? Because he wants to uh, highlight his his glory in vessels of mercy. There's there's a highlighting of his nature through a contrast. Right? We don't know the warmth of a blanket 
lest we step outside in January. The, the joy of that blanket, the, the warmth of that blanket, is highlighted all the more when we are freezing. Contrast, right? White trim on a house, it's, it's highlighted all the more through contrast. We don't experience the, the power and the far-reaching illumination of a candle unless we place it in a dark room. Right? You've ever had candles lit in a well-lit room? Just don't see it. But you put a candle in a dark room, and you're like, wow, this small little flicker can really create a lot of light. God is highlighting his nature through contrast. That's what he's doing. Because that's why we exist. And so what happens is when, 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 when the world looks at a distinct people who have, are now contrasting two objects of wrath, they're able to see the infinite and abundant nature of his mercy and his glory. That's what God is doing. We may not necessarily like it. We may not necessarily swallow it uh, as sweet because we have our own preconceived notions about what God should do and how God should act and how God should treat people. But in his divine sovereignty and according to his wisdom and because he is the potter and we are the clay, this is how he has chosen to reveal himself by highlighting the abundance of his glory in vessels of mercy on the backdrop of his, uh, his wrath and his power in vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. This is what God has done. This is what God continues to do. He has the right to do whatever he wills with whomever he wills to display who he is for one end, his own glory. That's why he made us. That's why he saves who he saves. To put on display his nature, his glory. And here's the wonderful thing of the gospel. That does not leave us in misery. That provides for us a joy and a satisfaction and a share in that glory that no life aimed at personal temporal happiness can ever give you. So if you're really longing for happiness and you're really longing for eternal satisfaction, find it where it is. It's not in yourself. It's not in the experiences of this American dream. No, it is in the glory and nature of Almighty God. Pursue God by faith in Jesus Christ and you will know and experience what He has prepared for His vessels of mercy, His own glory. Right? He, he wants to reveal His glory and He also has prepared for us this very glory that He shares with us for our joy. What an awesome thing it is to think about these things. And then he goes on, and I'm trying to be brief because of Family Sunday here, and there's so much here. Uh, verses 25 through 29, he, he just reinforces his claim that these vessels of mercy come from both Jews and Gentiles, not just the Jews, but from Jews and Gentiles. All of this is just in keeping with what he has promised, that God is faithfully doing what he said he would do. There's no possibility of, of questioning his nature or putting him on the stand, accusing him of anything when he's just simply doing what he said he would do. 
according to the promises that he made. Hosea, in this opening, these opening chapters, a uh, hundred years prior, where basically God is, 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 is uh, confronting the sin of the northern tribes of Israel, whom he has said, they're no, they're not even, they're no longer my people anymore. They've been cut off. They're not my people. They're not loved. Now he's saying to them, even in the midst of their judgment that's going to come from the foreign nation of Assyria, he's saying, listen, the people that I said were not my people, I will call my people again. The people that, uh, uh, that, that are not loved, I will call them beloved. In that very place that it was said to them, you're not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. That God is now just acting, and what Paul's doing is just applying these promises to the Gentiles. This way in which God is dealing with the Gentiles is just simply consistent with the way that he's always worked in saving a people. He's looking at people who are not his people. He's looking at people that are not loved, and he's calling them my people. He's calling them beloved. He's taking them to be his very own children through his work of adoption. So should, should the Jew be surprised by this kind of saving work of God in the midst of the Gentiles? No. This is exactly who they have worshipped. This is exactly uh, what God has promised. He's just faithfully doing what he said he would do. And the same for Isaiah. God never promised that every ethnic Jew would be saved. So why are they surprised that that's not the case? He's never promised that. No. He's all, he promised in Isaiah, uh, uh, verse 27, though the number of the sons of Israel should be as the sand of the sea, ethnic Israel, only a remnant of them will be saved. Only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have become like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Right? This is simply a fulfillment of what God said he was going to do. Save a remnant of Israel and include the Gentiles. Again, this way in which God is saving and redeeming is not inconsistent with what they, would have ex- uh, what, what they would have known, the promises that he has made. The Lord has every right to do what he wills, with whom he wills, to display who he is for his own glory. And you can't miss the emphasis of the prophets and Paul, that this is all showing that God is active and involved and we are fully dependent on his work and his activity. And if God had not acted, if we had not received mercy, the text tells us that we would have been like Sodom and been like Gomorrah. That it is his divine will and his, his choice to save whom he will and, and, and to bring them to himself, to call them his sons and his daughters. And if he had not done that, this is where our sin would have taken us. To judgment. I got to tell you.
It's hard not to look back on your life and wonder what it would have been like if the Lord had not done his work in me. I mean, 30 years of Christian, 15 years of pastor, be easy to have some sort of look at what I did mentality. Be easy to maybe have pride and have some sort of spiritual resume that maybe would impress God someday. But here's the deal. That's hogwash. I look back on my life, every stage, all that is, is good, all that is flourishing, and I just say, if the Lord had not done this, if it weren't for the activity, of, if, it, if it weren't for the mercy of God, if it weren't for the redemption of God, I would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. If it weren't for God's mercy, my sin would have brought me to places I don't even want to know. You ever think about that? Where would you be if it wasn't for the Lord's gracious uh, intervention and mercy in your life? I don't want to know the answer to that question. But I do want to know this and need to know this. That it is the Lord's mercy, it is the Lord's grace, it is the Lord's faithfulness to His promises to His people. That is the very basis of my salvation, very basis of all that is good in my life, all that is pleasing unto the Lord, it is all because of Him. It is all because of Him. And He deserves the glory for it. Right? He has the right to display His nature in me because He did it. He has the right to receive all the praise and the adoration throughout all eternity. And really, as I look at this passage, I look back on the rest of chapter 9, and you almost feel like you do when you're standing on the sh shore of the ocean. I don't, I don't have all the answers to all of the questions when I look at this passage, these texts. I haven't figured out all the hypotheticals. I know there's tension in here, and there's truths that are hard to bring together. I, I, don't, I don't have all the answers. And this isn't really meant to inspire some sort of theological debate between sides. I don't think that we necessarily come to the end of a passage like this, 9, 1 through 29, and we just, we just have more ammunition for our argument next time we get into it with somebody. I don't think that's the intention of Paul at all to bring us to that kind of a place. I think Paul is diving deep into the depths of the nature and the will of God in such a way to bring us to the edge of the ocean. And to just look and say, wow, I don't get it all, but it's deep. It's wonderful. It's glorious. It's vast. It's beyond me. This ocean of the nature and the purposes of God. Well, you say, I don't like water. Well, then you're on a mountaintop. It's the same thing how you feel at the top of a mountain. You look and you say, I don't. I don't get, I don't, I can't make out all the details, but wow, the majesty of this. Stand in awe. Stand in awe. Orient your life to display the nature of God in everything. Pursue His glory with all that you have. And stand in awe. Of God's sovereignty, 
God's justice, of God's mercy, of His promises made and kept, stand in awe and give Him the glory and the praise that He deserves for all that He has done in saving you and bringing you to Himself. Amen? Scratching the surface here. I've even gone long on Family Sunday. Here's the deal. Don't miss the point as I make points. God has revealed himself to you today, who he is, how he saves, why he saves, why he doesn't, some. See who he is and enjoy. Stand in awe. Bend the knee. Raise the hand. Worship your God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are imperfect instruments. We're vessels. We're clay. We're men. We're women. We're children. And you are God. You have made us for yourself. You have saved us for yourself. Display who you are in our lives. This is our prayer. That we would be images of you, representations of you. Forgive us when we turn life into something else. Forgive us when we try to fashion you into a God of our own liking and making and become the potter and make you the clay. Forgive us, O oh God. Fill us with your spirit. Give us a deep reverence and trust in your purposes. Just remove in us any desire or response that would challenge or question you. Put us in our place, O oh God. Bring us to the place you've prepared beforehand. Bring us to glory. We ask this in Christ's name.